0: Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come together in your name today. I thank you that we have the opportunity to spend time in fellowship as we worship you through song and word. I pray that you'll be with me as I preach, that my words would be true, that you would be speaking through me to both convict and encourage. May you be preparing the hearts of all those present to receive and respond to your word so that you may be glorified. Amen. Amen. Seeing as this is a one-off sermon, I thought I'd start by giving some background to the Gospel of John to situate us in our passage today. Broadly speaking, the Gospel of John is divided into two major sections, with a prologue at the start, um, John chapter 1, 1 to 18, and an epilogue at the end, uh, John chapter 21. The two major sections are commonly called the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. The Book of Signs goes to chapter 12, and the Book of Glory includes chapters 13 to 20. The first section, the Book of Signs, primarily deals with Jesus' public ministry, particularly to the Jews. He performs a number of signs that point to his identity. These signs and Jesus' teaching in this section prompt a variety of responses. Some people don't believe. Some people claim to believe and others come to genuine belief. This theme of belief is significant throughout John. Many times throughout the first half of the Gospel we're told that people believe in Jesus. But when Jesus' teaching gets too hard, going beyond what the hearers are willing to accept, um, or when Jesus challenges the motivation of those who are coming to him, they end up falling away or some of them even seek to kill Jesus. John chapter 8, 31 to 59, is a good example of this. We read in verse 31, To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. But by the time we get to verse 59, we read, At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds these people that are seeking to kill Jesus are the very same people who who we were told had believed in him this makes it clear that not all belief is genuine belief which then raises the question what is genuine belief and how can we know that we genuinely believe we'll get to that But that's not so much Jesus' concern, nor John's concern in the first half of his gospel. This first half, we could say, is a challenge to those seeking to follow Jesus. Both the signs he performs and the words he speaks point to who he is. But if we come to Jesus just to benefit from his miracles, or if we're willing to accept some of his teaching but not all of it, then to ask Jesus says, no, you are not my disciples. We come to Jesus on his terms, not ours. John's gospel is evangelistic uh, in nature. John makes his purpose for writing the gospel clear in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the first half of his gospel, he is calling his readers to genuine belief. To see the signs that Jesus has given, hear his words and repent and believe. The second half of his gospel is still evangelistic, but in a different way. Jesus shifts from his public ministry to private ministry. Rather than using signs to point to his identity, he begins to reveal his glory to his disciples openly. He tells them plainly what is to come, although they do still struggle to understand. Jesus' goal in this section isn't to divide between those who truly believe and those who don't. Jesus is now preparing those who do believe for what is to come. He still gives warnings and rebukes, but these are given to protect and correct his true followers, rather than to call their belief into question. Put simply, having called his followers to genuine belief, he now explains what it looks like to be his followers, as well as the reasons why they can be confident that their belief is genuine. Leading up to this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus has already predicted his own death, his betrayal by Judas, and Simon's denial. It's difficult to see how the disciples could be feeling anything other than fear and uncertainty at this point. And it's within this context that Jesus seeks to reassure and comfort them. He doesn't do this by sugarcoating what is to come or by telling them that they are strong and that they will endure. No, he ties their security directly to himself, their relationship to him and to the father. He tells them that the evidence of their abiding relationship will be seen in the way that they relate to one another in submission to him. Now, we come to the start of today's passage. Please have your Bibles open to John 15, so that you can follow along. In verse 1, Jesus begins this section of his discourse with the disciples by introducing a metaphor. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. This is the last of the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes throughout John's Gospel. Each one of these highlights something about who Jesus is and what he does. So far, Jesus has referred to himself as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and in today's passage, the true vine. And this last statement is somewhat unique in that it adds the father into the mix. While as the vine, Jesus is central, he is not operating by himself. As we will see, it is the Father who prunes and removes branches. Although Jesus and the Father are one, they have clear and distinct roles. The Father is not the vine, and Jesus is not the gardener. Jesus will continue to expand on this as the passage unfolds. This metaphor is effective for several reasons. The imagery of the vine and the branches and the fruit accurately portray Jesus' message, and it was relatable to his listeners who were familiar with growing grapes in the region. However, it also has significant Old Testament connections. Israel is referred to as the vine or the vineyard that the Lord planted in the Old Testament. But this is almost always spoken of in negative terms, as we've seen in both of our Old Testament readings for today. Turn with me again to Jeremiah 2, uh, chapters 20 to 22, which can be found on page 747 of the Church Bible. It's Jeremiah 2, 20 to 22. Now, some of my... uh Quotes are from the uh, NIV 2011, so they may be slightly different from uh, what you read here, but it should still make sense. Uh, Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. Israel was to be the vine of the Lord. Through them, the blessing of the Lord was to come to the world. They were to manifest his glory and make him known. But they failed. Rather than producing righteous fruits, they only produced evil and corruption. Isaiah 5 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the imagery that Jesus is drawing on when he uses this language of vine. Interestingly, As we come to the New Testament, it's not Christians or the church who replace Israel as the vine, but it's Jesus. He makes it clear that unlike Israel, he is the true vine. Only Jesus can succeed where Israel continually failed, and where we would continually fail apart from Christ. He is the only one that lives in perfect obedience to the Father. Now turn with me back to John 15. In verse two and three, Jesus goes on to explain the role of the father. Look with me at verse two. He, that is the father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. The father, as the gardener, cuts off the branches that produce no fruit. At this stage, Jesus doesn't explain what this means but it's easy enough to surmise that being cut off from the vine probably isn't a good thing. He then goes on to say that branches that do bear fruit will be pruned so that they can be more fruitful, to which he adds in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The statement may seem a bit out of place with the vine metaphor, but there is actually a play on words happening here. The word translated as prune in verse 2 is the same word translated as, as clean in verse 3. The Greek word has, the same, has both connotations. It's right to translate it as prune here, but it's important that we don't miss the fact that Jesus is using cleansing language. In order for the branches to produce more fruit, they must be cleansed. But Jesus reminds his disciples echoing his words from John 13.10, that those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Here, in John 15, he adds the reason why they are clean, because they have heard Jesus' word and they have believed in him. Unlike Israel, who were trying and failing to clean themselves, And remove their own shame of guilt. Jesus is clean, and not only that, but he is able to cleanse others. We, like the disciples, must be cleansed through hearing and submitting to God's Word. Jesus continues in verse 4 and 5, Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus has already made it clear that the Father will move those branches that do not bear fruit. And yet, the fruit isn't produced by the branches alone. No, they must remain in the vine. There can be a serious temptation, as Christians, having been saved by grace through faith in the work of Christ as revealed through his word, to then become proud or to fall back into old habits. We may think to ourselves, I believe, I said the prayer, therefore I'm saved. I can now get on by my own, by being a good person, and maybe doing some Christian things every now and again. Or perhaps it's more subtle than that. We know that we're saved by grace, but our own works slowly begin to dominate to the point that we become puffed up or proud, forgetting that these works are not our own and they don't save us. Or maybe we've just got it into our minds that Christ's work only gets us so far and now we have to work to maintain that salvation. As Paul puts it in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? If we believe that we can come to Christ for salvation and go about our own business, or that our own works are sufficient or necessary to earn salvation, then we are fools. We must not only come to Christ, but remain in him. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Jesus does call us to good works, but they are simply an evidence of something that has already occurred. They are evidence of salvation, in no way are they a means to salvation. With this exhortation to remain in him, Jesus now gives an explicit warning in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, this isn't saying that some who are genuinely in Christ will fall away. This isn't a verse about believers losing their salvation. John states, or sorry, Jesus states in John 6:39 that this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. And again in John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Salvation is assured for all of those whom the Father has given to the Son. We must be careful then not to stretch this metaphor too far and associate a branch that is attached to the vine with a genuine believer within this metaphor those who are genuine believers are those and those who have received salvation are those that remain in christ as we read this we're meant to think back to judas who though seemingly a follower of christ proves that his faith is not genuine through his betrayal and subsequent death judas is an example of a branch that was cut off and thrown into the fire It's not that Judas lost his faith and his salvation, but that he never had genuine faith or salvation. John 13.10 implies he was never made clean. Judas is a warning to us of what the outcome of not remaining in Christ looks like. Perhaps it won't be immediate physical demise, but the scriptures make it clear that those apart from Christ, eternal destruction awaits. Now rather than leaving the disciples and us with this chilling warning, Jesus goes on to offer further assurance. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now I did notice that a few of you were praying for new cars when I read this out earlier. I'm sorry to say that Jesus isn't offering to be your personal genie here. Maybe sorry is the wrong word. What Jesus is offering here is so much more than granting all of our frivolous desires. Now while it's easy to poke a little fun at the prosperity gospel, the issue of unanswered prayer can be difficult for all Christians especially when the things we're praying for seem like good and right things. We have to look to the likes of Paul as he prays for the removal of the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, to which God responds, my grace is sufficient. Or to Christ himself, who prays for deliverance from the cross, but willfully submits to the will of the Father, as he says, your will, not mine. While these things that we pray may be good, we often don't look to the bigger picture. But God always does, and he has promised that he will work all things together for our eternal good. What Jesus is doing here in verse 7 is giving us assurance that if we seek him, he will give us all that we need to remain in Christ and bear fruit in order to bring him glory. In doing this, we show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not only exhorting us to remain in him, but giving us confidence that the Father will give us all we need to do so. We don't remain in our own strength, but in God's strength, through prayerful reliance on him. In this next section, Jesus now goes on to flesh out what all this means in practice. Look with me at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Jesus begins by paralleling his love for us with the Father's love for him. But in what way are these two loves similar? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. The two loves are similar in that they are tied to obedience. This idea of love and obedience is repeated throughout John's Gospel. For example, in John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And in John 8.28-29, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am him, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And finally, John 10.17 For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The picture that is being painted for us here in John's Gospel, as well as elsewhere in Scripture, is that Christ shows his love for the Father through his obedience. And in the same way, he remains in the Father's love through his obedience. It should come then as no shock to us that Jesus calls us to relate to him in the same way. Jesus already made it clear in John 14:15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. We prove our genuine love, and we remain in Christ's love through our obedience to His word. Now, this isn't some kind of mechanical joyless obedience that we carry out because we are obligated to. No. Jesus says in verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This news isn't supposed to bring joy. This, sorry, this news is supposed to bring joy, not monotony. I was speaking to uh, one of my neighbours a couple of weeks ago. We just happened to be taking the trash out at the same time, and he was apparently quite desperate to chat. So much so that Kater eventually had to come outside and find me because she thought that I'd been murdered. Um, I forgot to take my phone with me. Anyway, my neighbour is an atheist, and he is recounting to me an interaction with another Christian. He said to me that this Christian couldn't stop talking about the joy that he had and that it brought him so much joy to share his joy of Christ with others. My neighbor went on to say that he found that so intriguing, so appealing. He said to me, I don't know what it means to have joy. Hearing that and reflecting on those words since has made my heart heavy. And it's challenged me. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we forget all too quickly that the gospel is truly great news to those who believe. It's not just a matter of avoiding punishment or even receiving eternal life in the future. The gospel offers something in this life that can't be gained any other way. True and lasting joy. We get to be in relationship with the God of the universe. We get to share in the very joy of Christ, something that the world knows nothing about. Like my neighbour, the world does want to experience this joy, but so often not if that requires submission to Christ. Yes, this is a rebuke to the world, but it's also a rebuke to us. We may be willing to submit, but do we do do so with joy or do we do so somewhat begrudgingly? A joyless witness is no witness at all. Now, this doesn't mean that we pretend to be happy or that we try to manufacture some sort of fake joy. If you feel as though you lack joy, pray that God would reveal his goodness to you afresh. Jesus has just said that I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What has Jesus just told us? He's told us that if we keep his commands, we will remain in his love. This is a source of joy. This is the source of joy. So study his word and remind yourself of the riches of his love and his faithfulness. Listen to and obey Jesus' teaching. Spend time in fellowship with other believers speaking about and dwelling on things that are honourable, pure, good, and worthy of praise, exhorting one another to joyful obedience. Not only are Jesus' commands good, but they're good for us. In verse 12, Jesus now explains what command he is specifically referring to. He says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, this shouldn't be seen so much as just a single command, but as a sum of all that Jesus has taught. If the disciples genuinely love one another as Christ has loved them, then they will be fulfilling all the commands that Jesus has given. Jesus is continuing his teaching from John 13, 35, where he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There, Jesus was highlighting that their love for one another is a witness to the world. Here, in our passage, he's highlighting that their love for one another is given as an assurance that they are indeed remaining in Christ. It's easy to see why this is such an important command. It allows the world to see that we are disciples of Christ, as well as giving us assurance that we are disciples of Christ. In verse 13, Jesus now defines what kind of love he is talking about or what this love looks like. Greater love has no one than this: to lay down his life for one to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus is doing a few things here. Firstly, he's indicating what is to come. Jesus is going to demonstrate his love by laying down his life. Not arbitrarily, as just one human dying for another, but as a perfect redeeming sacrifice, paying the penalty for the sins of his people and cleansing them of all unrighteousness in order to reconcile us to himself. However, that's not all he's doing. He's also giving us an example to follow. It's perhaps best not to take Jesus' words here to mean that we should all seek to go out and die for our friends, Jesus' death actually achieves something of eternal significance where our deaths do not. What Jesus is calling for us, calling here, is a life marked by self-sacrificial love, putting others' needs above our own in light of what Christ has already accomplished for us. While yes, most of the apostles do go on to lay down their lives, it's not in the same way that Jesus does. Jesus lays down his life as a ransom. The apostles lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, so that people may hear of Christ and believe. We too should be willing to lay down our lives in this way, to make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Having introduced this great act of love, Jesus now goes on to make it clear that that he is the one that is going to carry it out for them. He says in verse 14 and 15, You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. They can be sure that they are Jesus', that they are Jesus friends, and that he is going to lay his life down for them, because he has made his plan known to them. He no longer treats them like servants but as as friends, to whom he reveals his Father's will. Just as Abraham and Moses are called friends of God in the Old Testament because he reveals himself to them, so too with whom Jesus reveals himself. We like the disciples are called friends of God. He has revealed himself to us through his Son as revealed in Scripture. Now some people read this and think that because we are now friends of God that our relationship with him is like a human friendship. Some people use this as an excuse to approach him irreverently or in a very casual fashion. This passage isn't giving us permission to do that. Nowhere in scripture, including here, does it say that God is our friend. We are friends of God and there's a difference. We are commanded to submit in obedience to Christ in order to be his friends. He does not submit to us. We look to and we relate to Christ as our Lord and King, which is not compatible with our human notion of friendship. So let's be careful not to make Jesus say something that he's not actually saying here. We must approach God with reverence and respect, giving him the honour and glory that are rightfully his. Jesus closes off the section with more words of assurance. Look with me at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you so that you might go and be a fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus makes it clear that the reason that they are with him And the reason that they can be sure of their standing before God is that he chose them. He not only chose them, but he appointed them to go and bear lasting fruit. This has been his work from the beginning, and it continues to be his work in and through them that produces the fruit. He then emphasizes once again that the Father will give them all that they need to remain in the vine and accomplish the task that has been set for them. Now, Jesus isn't telling the disciples to literally pray the words in Jesus' name, as we often do. While this is a good thing to do, as it reminds us that through Jesus, we have access to God. It should not be seen as some kind of magical formula that we use to make sure God hears us. It's better to understand that when Jesus uses this phrase, he's talking more about praying in line with his character, praying in one accord with Christ. When we do so, we pray with his authority. We know this because this is how the concept of name works in the Old Testament. God's name is almost synonymous with God himself. Where his name is, his presence is. There are many places we could turn to, but Deuteronomy 12, 5 is a clear example, where God says but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To put it simply, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in line with his will. When we pray in this way, we are showing that we are in Christ and we can be confident that the Father hears us. With that said, the main thing that is being highlighted here is God's sovereignty. And it's being highlighted to assure the disciples and us that God is in control. Because he's in control, we can be confident that if we are obedient to what he has told us, then we will receive the promised outcome. If we remain in Christ by loving one another, we will bear fruit, thus proving that we are truly in Christ. Now this raises the question, which maybe you've had throughout this entire sermon, what is this fruit that we're meant to bear? This is a great question and there are several possibilities. It could be referring to Christian character. We could point to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, to 23 for example, or perhaps the list from 2 Peter 1, 5-11, where Peter specifically links his list of attributes to both effectiveness and productiveness, as well as being a means of assurance of election. This would fit well with our passage's emphasis on assurance and bearing fruit. Another option is that Jesus is talking about making new disciples. And this option actually makes the most sense of the words here in verse 16. The reason I say this is that Jesus says that I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. The apostles are appointed for a purpose as are we, to go and make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. The fruit that lasts is then referring to those disciples who persevere to the end, thus proving their faith genuine. However, it's quite possibly too narrow to boil this down to just one option. The emphasis in verse 16 does seem to be on making disciples, but that doesn't mean that other aspects of bearing fruit aren't also in view. Or haven't been in view throughout this passage. So perhaps we could simply call this fruit being conformed to the image of Christ, which incorporates all aspects of the Christian life and also necessarily requires the making of new disciples. This is a significant part of what Jesus did and what he calls us to do. Jesus then returns in verse 17 to the central point of this whole section. How can the disciples know that they are remaining in Christ? How can we know that we are remaining in Christ? Through our obedience to his command. And what is that command? To love each other. This is the primary way that we prove to be disciples of Christ. And it is also the primary means that Christ uses to draw people to himself. This too is a fruit that shows we are attached to the vine. We love because he first loved us loved us. Our love for one another is both a witness to ourselves and to the world, because it points directly to God. But it's clear that genuine faith is not worked out in isolation. The command that Jesus gives is a communal command, that is, it can only be carried out in community. We can't be solo Christians. The norm set out in scripture and seen here in this passage, is that we can't be in genuine relationship with God apart from his people. To remain in Christ is to remain in loving relationship with the body of Christ, that is, his people, the church. This is the primary means that God uses to relate... Sorry, the primary means that God gives us to relate to him, to have assurance of salvation, and to carry out fruitful and faithful ministry. So let us continually and confidently lift up our voices to God, knowing that he hears us. He is willing and able to act, asking him to remind us of the wonders of his love, so that we, we may better love one another. For by this we approve we prove that we are remaining in Christ. He is glorified, thus glorifying the Father. Now, this being the case... We should make spending time together a top priority, not just here at church or even the privacy of our homes. These are, of course, good and necessary. But if our primary Christian witness is restricted to these places, then our witness isn't gonna be particularly wide-reaching. Jesus appointed us to go, that is, to go and make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. It is through the proclamation of the words, as well as the tangible evidence of our love for one another, that we are effective witnesses to Christ. If people hear our words, but they see no joy expressed in our love for one another, then our words can easily fall flat. Think about it. Have I told you that I love marriage? I think it's wonderful. I love being married and more than anything, and it brings me great joy. I think that everybody should be married. But despite what I say, you almost never see me with my wife. And then you find out that I only spend time with her once a week, maybe twice if I have time. And you notice that when we are together, I seem hurried and like I wanna get away because I've got something more important to do. I think maybe you'd be a bit suspicious about how much I love my wife and how much I really love marriage. What I'm demonstrating with my life and actions simply does not match up with my words. In fact, I prove with my actions, and through how I relate to my wife, that my words are false, and that you probably shouldn't listen to anything I say about marriage. This illustration isn't perfect, but it does highlight that apart from visible witness, words mean very little. If we say that we love God, and that we are remaining in his love, but there is no evidence of this being worked out in our love for one another, then we are not only fooling ourselves, we are misrepresenting God and hindering the spread of the gospel. Yes, only God can bring someone to salvation, and he will work through even our feeble attempts at proclamation. But we are the primary means that he has chosen to do his work, and we need to carry it out in the way that he commands us that is, with joy and through love, both of which we have as we remain in Christ through obedience to his word. Only through Christ is obedience possible, and only through our obedient love for one another is our genuine love for Christ made known. So let us strive together in Christ towards such love so that we can confidently say, I am remaining in Christ. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that everything you command us to do, you also enable us to do. Thank you that you have given us one another as a tangible way to experience and demonstrate your love for us and our love for you. We're sorry for the times that we fail to love, as we should, and when we try to bear our own fruit apart from you. We're sorry for times when we just go through the motions, forgetting the fullness of joy that we have as we remain in you. Help us to demonstrate our love for you through our love for one another, as we submit in joyful obedience to your word, thus remaining in your love. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.